Welcome to More Than 7 Dirty Words, the official FCC podcast. I'm Evan Schwarztrauber. It's a cliche, but that doesn't make it any less true. Technology has changed rapidly over the past several decades, and the FCC has played a role in enabling the introduction of new services and technologies that we use in our daily lives. But few people have had the unique perspective of my guest today, who has been overseeing these developments for the past uh, some years, I'll let him say that number himself, uh, from the brick cell phones of the 80s to the smartphones of today, from the early days of cable television to the streaming devices being used in homes across the country. What's it been like to see this evolution, and how has the agency evolved to keep pace with the new tech coming to market? Joining me to discuss this is none other than Julie Knapp, Chief of the Office of Engineering and Technology at the FCC. Julie, thanks for joining. Well, thank you, Evan. It's a pleasure to be here. So I always start the same way. How did you get to your current role? What pathway took you here? So uh, I did start a few years ago. <laughs> uh, some Like three or four? Yeah, some say it was like just after the discovery of fire. Oh, that's good, yeah. <laughs> so, I didn't realize that was an engineering issue. Yeah, um, no, I actually came to the FCC straight out of college. Uh, engineering school was 1974, so seen a lot transpire since then. And I spent a good part of my career out at the FCC lab, actually performing measurements on equipment and so forth, and and had various management positions in the Office of Engineering and Technology through the years, uh, involving spectrum allocations, unlicensed, and so forth. And I've, I've had this job for a bit over 13 years now as the chief of the Office of Engineering and Technology, OET. Wow, yeah. I mean, people uh, these days in D.C. don't are not too loyal to their jobs, but uh, thankfully we have folks like you who <laughs> stick around. So um, I had your now retired colleague Walter Johnston on the show, we talked a bit about the experimental licensing program specifically, but in general, I mean, how do you see the role of the Office of Engineering and Technology, which might not be the part of the agency that a lot of folks interact with necessarily, depending on how they, you know, come to get to know the agency? Yeah. Um, it, it is a fun and interesting job. So as you would anticipate so many of the things that the FCC deals with involve techno technology and engineering matters. And uh, so part of the role for the Office of Engineering and Technology is to sort through that and provide uh, advice to the chairman and commissioners to work with the other bureaus and offices and so forth. And uh, of course, we have direct line responsibilities for things like equipment authorization and, as you mentioned, experimental licensing. So this is kind of a two-part question. I'll start with the first part. Over your uh, short career uh, here at the FCC, what technologies that have come across your desk really stick out in your mind even today with all the new stuff on the horizon? What are the older things that maybe we're using now, you know, on a mass scale and don't even think about uh, really just stick out to you? Yeah. So obviously so much has changed in, in that 45 years or so. Uh, one, is, of course, is the introduction of commercial wireless technologies. I still remember, uh, and I've repeated this story many times. <laughs> well, I've never <laughs> being, heard it, so feel free to. <laughs> being being uh, in the hallway when we were considering uh, uh, additional spectrum allocations for commercial wireless. And at that point in time, commercial wireless was introduced in uh, roughly 1983. And here we are at 1986, 87, looking at, well, maybe they need more than the 40 megahertz they 
they started with. And uh, the discussion in the hallway was at that point in time, they had 600,000 subscribers. And the question was, do you think they'll ever get over a million? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, today we've got more uh, wireless devices, phones out there than people. Yeah. Uh, so that's it's very common to have two cell phones. Ab yeah. Absolutely. And so that, I think, has been a, a, a dramatic change through the years. Of course, the emergence of the Internet. Uh, and uh, the explosion of unlicensed devices, the things that we use every day in our lives and don't even think about them using uh, radio. So uh, there, there are so many other things you could uh, uh, talk about, but those stand out. Yeah, and unlicensed is a great segue because I wanted to ask, you know, when the FCC is looking at a particular spectrum band, you know, the, the airwaves that are going to be used for a specific technology or not, I mean, sometimes they look at it and they just say, we don't know what this is going to be used how do you, as you know, as an engineer and as the Office of Engineering, how do you deal with this issue of, okay, there's this spectrum here. We don't really know how it's going to impact the economy necessarily. We don't know what's go what it's going to be used for, but we still have to allocate it or we have to designate it as licensed or unlicensed. How do you deal with that issue when you might not see the payoff for, you know, dozens of years down the road? Yeah. So, um Let's look at it from a couple of different perspectives. One is uh, this thing that is the master zoning map for the airwaves uh, in the world and in the United States. It's organized in a way so that the services that sit side by side uh, will, won't interfere with each other. And we do that through technical analysis. Uh, so that's one area, just managing the, this master zoning map of the airwaves to make sure all the pieces fit together well. And the other is performing technical analysis. I have a service in one area on the same frequency as service in another area. How do we do the engineering calculations to make sure that they won't interfere with each other? And uh, at a very high level, it, it sounds simple, but it obviously is much more complicated than that. Of course. And then lastly, I think the, uh, the beauty of this all is moving from an era many years ago where we looked at exactly what the service was going to be and try to predict its characteristics to a model where uh, we set, excuse me, general technical uh, parameters and then let innovation flourish. Uh, great example uh, in, in the service that many people called 4G, uh, which was exciting when it was being introduced, but nobody was really anticipating things like the iPhone and uh, stores, marketing applications, and so forth, and that was transformational. And uh, that's terrific. That's what we try to do is let innovation and investment flourish. Right. So another great example, 4G, of course, is one, Wi-Fi. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of the uh, spectrum that is used for Wi-Fi was designated as unlicensed well before anyone was using it as Wi-Fi. So how does that, you know, play into your thinking? And, you know, when you were dealing with that spectrum, you know, 2.4 gigahertz, 5 gigahertz for you uh, nerds out there, uh, or those of you who've looked at the back of your router, um, <laughs> how do you deal with that? Yeah. So, so that's a great example of a model where we set a framework and let innovation flourish. So uh, there was a landmark decision in the mid-1980s to open up bands that were thought of as junk <laughs> because they uh, 
They were bands set aside for machines that radiated a lot of radio energy, so other services were not protected against interference. So we made them open for unlicensed use, set of rules that were known as spread spectrum. The rules didn't say what the devices were going to be, uh, and uh, so now let's fast forward from 1985 when those rules were, were developed to the introduction of the first generation Wi-Fi in the late 1990s. Uh, so that emerged uh, originally as a way to link computers together. And nobody at the time we made this decision in 1985 was thinking, oh, there will be a Wi-Fi, and, <laughs> and Wi-Fi will be available nearly everywhere in the world. If they knew, they'd probably be pretty wealthy today. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So, uh, you know, it's a great example of creating a, a flexible frame, framework where the technology can flourish in ways that nobody can anticipate the time you take the action. So, yeah, we've mentioned some technologies that have come across your desk that are now being used, which are great, you know, 4G, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth's another example. Looking ahead, as you look to maybe what the next big thing is, the next big Wi-Fi, something that might change the market, what gets you excited in this unique role that you have about what you're working on today that we might see down the line? Yeah. So uh, one of the fun things about this job is uh, on a daily basis, we have people coming in with new ideas and trying to find ways to enable their introduction. So there's a lot of discussion right now in focus on 5G, and maybe I'll just say a few words about what I think is transformational about, uh, transformational about 5G. So uh, we've seen the uh, evolution from one generation technology to the next. 5G is transformational in one particular uh, respect, and that is it allows for real-time interaction <laughs> with uh, things. And that's a game changer. Uh, you know, an obvious way or, or is the interaction on games. Uh, it, when you're pushing the buttons on the game uh, controller and the action is not keeping up and you're losing points because of this, you know, that that is meaningful to the people who play that. But more than that, it's the ability to uh, control machines at a distance and have a real-time interaction. Uh, so, so the real-time interaction is one uh, way. It opens the door for things like trans transportation applications, uh, medical and so forth. Um, the capacity increase and why does that matter? Uh, it's not just faster download speeds and videos and so forth. Uh, but it opens the door to applications where you need a lot of data for things to happen rapidly, like uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, and so forth. So I'll stop there. That's just the 5G. You know, the, uh, I won't stop there. Uh, one thing uh, more, you know, in the satellite arena, uh, we're seeing the introduction of huge constellations of uh, low-Earth orbiting satellites, which reduces the latency for providing broadband services uh, to people. So another way to get service perhaps out to people who don't have broadband service today. And this is different than, you know, the satellites people might be familiar with, the really, really big ones, which are stationary. They just go up into space and they stay in one spot and they beam something down. Now we're talking about, you know, maybe a thousand or thousands of much, much smaller satellites that do actually orbit the Earth. Yeah, and the satellites now come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things I've watched through my career, you know, years ago you'd think of a satellite as a big piece of equipment machine uh, up in space. 
and and now uh, you'll have a satellite that is smaller than the size mm-hmm. of a shoebox, <laughs> uh, and and that's just remarkable to think of the constellations of these that uh, we'll have up in the sky. So we did an entire episode about experimental licensing, so we don't have to get too bogged down in that. But there's another program that's big in OET called Equipment Authorization. We might want to get sexier names for these programs, <laughs> but, uh, but it's okay. It, it is literally authorizing equipment, so I guess it's an apt name, and that yeah. gets a lot of attention. Yeah. Uh, maybe some certain thing that happened with our government a few months back got people uh, riled up about it. But uh, you know, what role does equipment authorization play uh, at the FCC, and maybe are there some examples of technologies that people might not realize actually do come to the FCC before they're able to buy them in a store or buy them online? Yeah, a- absolutely. So uh, the purpose of the Equipment Authorization Program is to make sure that the equipment meets all of these technical rules that we put in place to make sure that all of these services and products can share their airways without stepping on each other without interference. And uh, although the, the techie requirements are things like the power and the frequency and out-of-band emissions and so forth, in the end, that's what makes everything play together nicely. So uh, almost all of the radio transmitters that we use have to be certified before they can be marketed. In other words, they get tested, they're reviewed by outside experts, we call them telecommunications certification bodies. And then in the end, before they go on the market, the grants of certification are entered into a public database. So the minute something's entered into the database, there's often, uh, because everything up to that point is non-public, there's a lot of speculation about what that product is, and uh, because we don't actually certify relative to what it does. We just make sure it's in the right lane on the airwaves, the power level is right. We don't look at what are the capabilities relative to its performance. Right. So you're just making sure everything plays nice and uh, we take it for granted, but there's a reason that devices are not interfering. It's because the FCC is doing things to make sure of that. And if you just allowed people potentially to build any equipment and transmit on any frequency, then clearly there would be interference. And uh, that's why we have enforcement folks to deal with that. I'm sure I'll do a separate episode about that. But, um, you know, other things that, you know, might not be obvious to people that the FCC is dealing with. One example that uh, you shot over in the notes when we were discussing uh, what to talk about today that I've got to bring up, shoulder pads in football players. What does the FCC have to do with shoulder pads in football players? So so that's the beauty of what we talked about before. So uh, many years ago, the commission established rules for a technology called ultra-wideband. These are signals that are very low level, but spread over a broad range of frequencies at extremely, uh, as I said, very low power levels. And uh, it was very controversial at the time because it overlaid on spectrum used by other services and there was concerns about interference. That's a common thing. There's always people concerned about interference. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, originally at the time, people were thinking that this was going to be something like uh, wireless broadband and so forth. Uh, So we have a commission rulemaking proceeding where we're looking at some of the spectrum where these devices operate. 
And lo and behold, people came in and said, remember that ultra-wideband technology that you authorized years ago? Well, we actually have it deployed in the shoulder pads of the football players in the National Football League. And you'd say, well, why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so when you're watching the broadcast and you see uh, the, the commentators talk about exactly where this player was and so forth, they're getting this information from the location technology for each of the players on the field wow. to help with the analysis. And uh, so here's something you wouldn't even be aware is there that has an application that we may appreciate as viewers, uh, sports enthusiasts, uh, and never know that there's a technology connection. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, and, and there's other sports as well. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, it never occurred to me when I'm watching these football games and they show the heat map or how, where, you know, the ground that is being covered and how often this player spends on this route versus this route. And you just kind of watch. You're like, cool, that's cool that they have it. But yeah. you never really stop to ask how in the world in the course of a game are they able to get this information so quickly? Yep. Um, so we talked about 5G. You talked about Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, so many great technologies. Um, another one that's uh, been coming up in the news a lot these days is uh, TV white spaces. Yes. And there's a great example, I think, of a name that doesn't necessarily indicate to the uninitiated what exactly uh, is going on. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. any thoughts on that? So, you know, one of the challenges that we have is that we're uh, providing access to the airways for all of these new technologies and services. But we're not manufacturing any new airwaves, new spectrum, new uh, frequencies. Yeah, we don't have people for that. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, if I could find a factory, I'd probably be out of a job. <laughs> but uh, so we've been looking at ways that we can provide access to the spectrum without interfering. And uh, in the TV broadcast spectrum, uh, it, when you go out, particularly into the rural areas, there are many channels that aren't being used. So uh, this technology uses a database. The product says, here's where I am. It accesses the database. The database says, if you're at that place, here are, here are the vacant channels. Here are the channels that are not being used by TV or low power or translators and so forth. And then the device is smart enough it can move to those frequencies. So what does it do? Why is this interesting? Um, because at the frequencies in the TV spectrum, I get good coverage over hills and uh, through buildings. Yeah, as opposed to maybe certain high bands, which we're talking about for 5G, where you need an antenna every three city blocks. That's not necessarily yeah. what, what we're going to see in rural America. So, so yeah. here we're talking about something that maybe can go 10 or 12 miles and get a pretty decent data rate uh, to provide services to people. So uh, one of the things that we've been doing is try to keep fine-tuning those rules. Similar to Wi-Fi, we fine-tuned those rules several points along the way to, to, to make that happen. So, uh, you know, we just... Uh, last week had made some updated changes in the rules. There are likely more to come to, to make it even uh, more amenable for these kinds of services. But it's a way to provide for new services for consumers and squeeze more out of the airwaves that we have. And then uh, looking forward to airwaves where we're not necessarily seeing wide deployments, but the FCC is opening them up for experimentation and unlicensed. The term Spectrum Horizons has been a part of FCC agendas for a couple of years now. We're talking Spectrum bands that 
I'm sure previously people thought were junk. And there's a great pattern in history at the FCC of spectrum bands being thought of as junk in one era and then maybe transforming our economy in another era. Yeah, yeah. But when we think to these you know, horizons, 95 gigahertz and above, terahertz spectrum, I mean, just based on your experience, do you have a sense of what you'd like to see happen or if you could wave a magic wand, what sorts of cool technologies might yeah. be coming out of that? Yeah. So um, let, let's go back. When you look at the earlier history of the commission, uh, there were times where people in the, uh, a while back thought 30 megahertz was high. <laughs> and as we moved uh, up in the, the radio spectrum, the signals don't go as far pound for pound. And uh, even in the early days of cellular, the, the 800 megahertz frequencies that were thought of were thought of at the time as, well, that's really high. Well, it, it did matter that the signals didn't go quite as far because we could have a network of transmission towers to get the coverage that we needed. Uh, and it wasn't all that long ago that people talked about the only spectrum for mobile communications uh, that was usable because of these high losses was below 3,000 megahertz, 3 gigahertz. So there's been the progression of moving higher and higher up in the airwaves, opening it up for new services and technology development. So just last week, we uh, released a commission decision. It was actually made uh, uh, a week ago, this past Friday, to open up spectrum above 95 gigahertz. And it's another great example of, uh, just like back in 1985, we don't know what will emerge here. Uh, there are exciting possibilities. But often the technology develops to the point to overcome those things that we might think of as obstacles to today. And uh, so, so, for example, people say, well, the signals don't go as far, but I can network the devices in a way to overcome that. So who knows what the future will bring? Uh, you know, some, some speculated, oh, that's 6G already. I, I don't know that I'd go quite that far. <laughs> uh, we're still working on the 5G. But uh, the, the important thing is, create the opportunities, and then see where it leads. So for potential uh, young people listening to this podcast, I don't really know if there anyone's listening, but, <laughs> but let, let's just say some young whippersnappers out there listening, yeah. and they're like, wow, engineering, yeah. I am sold. I want to do it. <laughs> what advice do you have for that young person? So think of the FCC as a <laughs> career opportunity. Yeah. Um, it really is a great place to work. I think the, uh, the the thing for young engineers, so so often now we're looking at the computer science area, cyber and so forth. There is an enormous amount of uh, exciting work in the radio field. And uh, for me personally, you know, obviously I've stayed and uh, I found it to be a very uh, rewarding and fun career. There's never a dull day. I'm never sitting there looking at the clock. If anything, it's uh, my wife calling and telling me it's time to come home. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, I know you're busy because yeah. we had to schedule this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, public service and government can be a very rewarding field. And uh, any final thoughts before I ask you about the super secret lab in Columbia, Maryland, which you briefly mentioned? And of course, we don't want to give away anything that would cause major problems uh, for our society. But uh, 
What should people know about this? I mean, I think people might be familiar with the FCC because of some controversial thing or some headlines, which is kind of why I started this show to cover other topics. But, um, you know, yes, we do have this building in D.C. where you and I are talking, but there's also this lab in Maryland. What's going on at that lab? So the the, the fun thing about the lab, so many of the things that we do down here – uh, involve what you might think of as paper. You know, in other words, people filing arguments about uh, there'll be no interference or there'll be massive interference <laughs> and so forth. Out at the lab, it gives us an opportunity to do hands-on work with products. So part of it is uh, managing the equipment authorization pro- program, which is really a worldwide program now, and making sure that everybody is singing to the same sheet of music. To have the ability to call in a product and see people have said this cer- certain product is causing problems, interference, and so forth, so that we there we can bring it in, put it on the test bench, and see what's going on. And we can do some uh, uh, research on some of these technical debates. Well, when we look at the issue, is there really an interference risk or, or not? Uh, so that's what we have going on out there. All right. Well, uh, if you think something's causing interference, we'll make sure to provide uh, Julie's cell phone number in the notes of this podcast so you can get in touch directly. I'm sure that would not backfire at all. Um, all right. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I just uh, you know want to say a great big thanks to all of the people that uh, I've had the privilege of working with through the years. Of course, the many chairmen and commissioners, uh, the past staff at OET, and you know I sit here having the honor of representing a group of people who make this uh, happen every day, and uh, they are terrific, uh, the un- unsung heroes of communications. And I want to thank you for coming on the show uh, for what was a really great and entertaining discussion and informative, and uh, I look forward to many more years uh, seeing you uh, get more spectrum out there, approving more devices, seeing how the market changes, and uh, I hope this gives people a sense of uh, how the FCC does engineering. Uh, So with that, I'll leave it there. My guest has been Julie Knapp, uh, Chief of the Office of Engineering and Technology at the FCC. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Evan. It's my pleasure. Find this podcast in the iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear or don't, leave a review. Uh, It will help others find the show. Even if you write something bad, it also might help others find the show. I don't know. I don't write the algorithm. Uh, Follow me on Twitter at EvanS underscore FCC. And with that, catch you next time.